Thank you uh, so much. I think one of the things I missed the most last year uh, with our virtual convention was this, the music, uh, being able to sing together and hear everyone sing together. Well, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker. Uh, our speaker is known for having a, a beautiful wife and uh, four, that's not a joke, Wendy, and four lovely daughters. Um, he's being known, uh, he's been known as a faithful pastor for many years, um, a dedicated educator, a skilled expositor, but most of all, he's known for wearing really trendy bow ties. And uh, you know what they say, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And I brought this uh, to the convention and I told my wife, if Richard's wearing a bow tie Monday night, I'm wearing the bow tie. I think the last time I was two when I wore a bow tie. <laughs> and Richard said, you probably had shorts on. I think I did at the time. Seriously, I am so happy that uh, he is our executive director. When our need for new leadership was presented, we weren't sure how God uh, was going to provide. And uh, this weekend, as our board met together, one of the board members said to me during one of our breaks, he said, I think we have the right guy. And indeed, we do. I couldn't agree more. And so it is my honor to present to you for the first time in person as IFCA International's our Executive Director, Dr. Richard Vargas. Don't you wonder what these guys say when they come up and you see them whisper to each other? He said, that's the last time he's going to wear this tie. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Well, this is a special week uh, for us in the home office. It is the culmination of a lot of work and a lot of prayer. We do pray every single day when we end our work day, and we pray for you pastors in general. We pay for your, pray for your churches. We pray for many of you by name, individually, for your needs, and we are so thankful for you. The IFCA is not the church, but it is a servant to the church. We serve the church of Jesus Christ because Christ loves his church, and so we're so thankful to be here with you. You might wonder how it is that we came with uh, this theme this year that we we're going to be talking about biblical eschatology, or the fact that our king is coming back, the soon and coming king. And although that is, uh, with all the COVID craziness that's been going on and all of the other things that have been uh, happening in our culture and in our world, um, it really wasn't all that that made me think that this was the necessary time and season for this message. It really is the fact that within the church, there is so much confusion in the area of biblical eschatology. We need to plant flags as IFCA members that we're not, we're not starting wars. We're just reminding ourselves and reminding the church, this is where we are. This is what we truly are, uh, are convinced of. These are our convictions 
as members of IFCA International. And so we have some fine speakers. My pastor, Alex Montoya, would have said that I'm the chips and salsa and the real meal is coming in the days ahead. But I, I would like to take the time that we have this evening just to set the, the table to prepare us for the three men that are going to come and serve us with the word of God uh, in the next three session, general sessions. And the way I thought would be best, and as I shared what I was going to be teaching with several pastors, the same response came back, is we need to hear that message. And I was so thankful to have that response given to me. And it really is the answer to a question, is why do we need to study and teach biblical eschatology? Why do we need to even bother addressing this issue? You know, um, there are a lot of views of end times, and a lot of these views have caused division in the church. They've caused uh, not only division, but confusion and even frustration. And, you know, it really isn't difficult if a person wants to downplay the importance of eschatology. Uh, they can easily do that by pointing to extreme examples of uh, other views that they don't agree with. And uh, they can show that, look at, this is the way these are, they're crazy, look at what they do. Look at this group over here, they're crazy, look at what they do. And this group over here, look at them. You know, it's just fruitless. Why even bother? There are so many more important things. Even some, and I know most of you have heard, somebody jokingly refer to themselves as a pan-millennialist, saying that it'll all pan out in the end. What are you? Are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you postmillennial? And some have come to the conclusion, and unfortunately, many pastors and young seminary students coming out of seminary saying, I'm a panmillennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. You know, complexity, uh, alternate views, even wacky ideas among some teachers are not enough for us to put off the study of end times. We shouldn't follow. Uh, we wouldn't follow that kind of reasoning regarding the difficulties in our understanding of other doctrines, would we? You know, the Trinity is, is a pretty intense doctrine, and it's pretty important that we get it right. But nobody throws up their hands and says, well, that's such a hard doctrine. So I, since, since there's so much disagreement about the Trinity, I think I'm going to just be a pan-Trinitarian. Any pan-Trinitarians out here? course not. I've never met a pan-Trinitarian because we understand that. They wouldn't do that with the Trinity or with the doctrine of hell or any other important key doctrine in scripture. And it's interesting that as I was uh, doing research and studying, as I looked at the introductions of several books on eschatology, many of them referenced the fact that the end times and the doctrine of teaching the end times is very popular among Christians. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that was true at one time in past decades. But you know what? Something troubling has happened. And it hasn't just happened out there. It is even happening in our own churches. You know, going back to the mid-90s, the mid-2000s, we could point to the overwhelming popularity of the Left Behind series and show that that's proof that there is indeed an interest in end times theology. The interest was very high. Dispensational premillennialism was the majority view. But with the rise of the young, restless, and reformed crowd, 
came a renewed interest in covenant theology. And with that also came a surge in the interest in amillennialism and postmillennialism, as well as a backlash against dispensational premillennialism. Now, today, the popularity of the Left Behind series is used to mock dispensationalists. Long, detailed dispensational charts. You remember the Clarence Larkin ones? They're laughed at. And even worse than just being mocked, our doctrine is often called unbiblical and even heretical. For brothers and sisters, truth is not established on popularity. It's not established on wide acceptance. It isn't proven false by ad hominem attacks. Now, I think that our doctrine stands solidly on biblical exegesis of Scripture, and that if it's held consistently, a literal grammatical hermeneutic will land you squarely in our view. And I think it's because of that, since those who reject our view can't do so on strong exegetical grounds, have to do it through other methods through mockery and straw man arguments. Some of those methods include rejecting that consistent literal hermeneutic. So the text can say something other than it says. And if you can't do it that way, then oversimplification or complaining about the overcomplication of dispensational eschatology also has the effect on those who want to reject our view without engaging it with cogent arguments. When you consider that these things are happening among young pastors, in churches, as well as those in seminaries, you're going to end up with even more confusion in the church. And it shows up most often by those who want to reject the need to be dogmatic in these things at all. We have to show charity, and we must show grace in our disagreeing with those that are in other eschatological camps. But we also need to be courageous in dealing with those that I think is, uh, I'd like to coin this term, they are eschatological agnostics. They want to say they don't hold a view because they're too humble to take a stand or because it's just too complicated and we can't really know whether anything is right or wrong, so let's not push it or it doesn't even really matter. Brothers and sisters, these things are too important to downplay because the way that you interpret prophecy actually will show you how you will interpret the whole Bible. And to make things worse, there are too many denominations, too many fellowships that are sliding or they're refusing to take a stand on their views of eschatology. Well, brothers and sisters, we aren't doing that. We are going to feast on the word this week, and we are going to find great hope and encouragement in this subject. So I'd like to get us started this evening by reaffirming and reminding us all why we need to study and why we need to teach biblical And so it only seemed appropriate for us to have seven reasons, right? 
seven reasons why we need to study and teach biblical eschatology. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 for most of this and a couple other passages tonight. But before we do that, as you're turning there, I'm going to just ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this evening. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we are not in the dark about what is to come. We rejoice that your word is clear. It is sufficiently clear for us to find great hope and encouragement. We know what will happen, Lord. We may not know the timing, but we do know what will happen. You have given these things to us, that we would be encouraged, that we might bless, that we might feel urgency. And so we thank you, Lord God, that we are not gathering here to to promote speculation, but to teach the whole counsel of your holy word. Help us, Lord God, as the days grow in confusion, as darkness overcomes the world. The world around us needs this kind of hope. They need this kind of direction and guidance. Fill your pastors, the leaders of your church, fill their mouths with your word. Help them as they stand in the pulpit of your church. And as they open their mouth, may they confidently say, thus says the Lord. We ask this of you tonight as well. We ask for the following evenings. We ask this of all of our sessions where we'll be meeting together, men and women, to teach the word of God. Fill our mouths with your word. And as we sit to listen, we ask you, Lord God, that you would speak for your servants are listening. It is in Christ Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Why do we need to study and teach biblical eschatology? Seven reasons. Let me give you reason number one. Revelation chapter one, verses one and two. Here's the first reason. We need to do this because it puts the glory of God on display. Because it puts the glory of God on display. Notice how John starts this verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Our English Bible often often titles this final book of Scripture, The Revelation to John. But the Holy Spirit gave this book a better title. It literally says in Greek, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Within its 22 chapters, this book does more than simply reveal to us the future of humanity or the future of our universe. Even better, it reveals to us our Savior Jesus Christ in his full resplendent glory. Christ is revealed as walking among his churches, as the only one worthy to open up the scroll and the one who is able to reveal its contents. Christ is revealed in his full glory at his return, coming with the saints and angels to bring justice against the wicked, speaking with the sword of his mouth and bringing his enemies to nothing. Christ is shown to be the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the lamb who was slain and yet is alive. Why do we need to study and teach biblical eschatology? Because we want our churches to hear and to see the glory of our Savior as it's described in Scripture. Secondly, 
We need to teach and study this important doctrine because it shows us God's future plans. Notice again in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Here it's an interesting chain of events. God the Father gave the revelation to Christ for the purpose of sharing it with his servant John, who would in turn share it with the church. So we have to ask ourselves, what is so important that the Father wants us to know? The things that must soon take place, it says. Regarding this, our dear brother Robert Thomas wrote, For the first time, the events predicted by Daniel and foreseen by Christ stood in readiness to be fulfilled. Therefore, John could speak of them as imminent, but earlier prophets could not. You know, we all know that there are extremists who practice date setting, who see the mark of the beast and things like the COVID vaccines. But, but we shouldn't put off, be put off by those extremists so that we don't delight that God has revealed many things about future events. By knowing what to expect in the end times timeline, we can warn and, and defend against false teachers. We can know what to look for on the horizon. We can give assurance when some begin to worry that they might have missed out on what the Lord has promised will come. It tells us what's coming, and that's why we need to teach it. Thirdly, we need to study and teach biblical eschatology because it comes with blessings. It comes with blessings. Notice Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. In this verse, we're reminded that the early church would gather together for the public reading of the word. Just like it was practiced in the synagogue. They would gather together, and someone would stand and read the scripture. Now, that was necessary, of course, because in that time, when almost no one had a personal copy of the scripture, they had to listen as a group. They had to come together to hear the word of God read. But notice that the blessing is not simply for the reading. It's not enough for us to stand in our churches and just read from Revelation or other prophecy. But it's required that the listener hear the words read with receptive ears that were to obey what is heard. We know that because the grammatical structure of this verse connects together these three participles, reading, hearing, and keeping, puts them all together. The Lord calls us to study and teach biblical eschatology not simply to satisfy intellectual curiosity about the future, but that we might act, that we'd act with courage, with confidence, with gravity, with purity, with boldness in speaking the gospel. And you know, when we do those things, 
we know that there will be blessings that will flow from it. We want the blessings of the word. And so we need to study and we need to teach these things. Fourthly, we need to study and teach biblical eschatology because the time is near. The time is near. Look at the end of verse 3 again. I mean, it literally says that. You don't have to be an expert homiletician to see the point there. It tells you the purpose clause, for the time is near. Just like verse 1 says of the things that must soon take place, so too here we have again a reminder of the imminence of the Lord's return, the unfolding of all these events that are yet future. In 1 John 2, 18, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, this is the last hour. Paul warns his readers in Romans 13, 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's interesting when you start looking at more recent church history, the tumultuous 1960s and 1970s. In those, those decades, there was a resurgence. It started in California uh, amongst the Jesus people. Now, they had a lot of problems with their theology. But you know one thing that they stress coming out of all of the things that were happening in the culture at that time was the fact that there was a great expectation of Christ's return. They looked around and they saw everything going on in the culture, everything happening in politics all over the world, and they were enamored with the idea that Jesus is coming again. And you know what's interesting is that in the last several decades, the Western church has enjoyed incredible prosperity. They've enjoyed acceptance, for the most part, in society. And because we have grown large churches and large ministries and all kinds of things, the church, especially in the West, has lost sight of the imminence of Christ's return. And it's faded in our churches in many ways. Instead of us looking forward to when Jesus will come again, instead of remembering that this world is not our home, instead of being satisfied with tents, we have begun to build temples. And we've begun to be so comfortable here that when we start feeling it slip away, we panic and we fight with earthly weapons. And we have to be reminded that this world is not our home. But we don't have to worry about waking up on our own because the darkness has revealed itself to us. It's revealed itself to us in ways that we thought would, we would never see in our lifetimes. The social wars, the political changes that so many, even within the church, have placed their faith in, have not produced what they promised. And the pendulum has swung 
toward the wicked elements of this world. And so now, now is the time for us to pick up our Bibles and to stand up in our churches and to remind God's people, as we should have never stopped reminding them, is that the time is near. These evil days have served us in a good way to remind the church to once again have that blessed word, Maranatha, on our lips. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's why we need to study biblical eschatology. That's why we need to teach it. Because the time is near. Fifth, we need to study and teach biblical eschatology because it encourages the saints. I want you to go to two passages, both in 1 Thessalonians, one in 4.18, the second in 5.11. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, and then we'll jump over to 5.11. The fear of being down the line of a conference speaker is that the guy that goes before you is going to use up all your texts. I'm not going to do that if you're here and you're one of our speakers. I'm just touching on these things because these are keys for us to remember why we need to study and teach these things. Here's what it says, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Therefore, after going through a passage on the coming of our, our Savior, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What's the antidote for a weak and anemic faith? Well, for weak and brittle bones, we would prescribe calcium. And for weak and brittle faith, the great physician prescribes biblical eschatology. When I was getting mic'd up, they were going to put one of those annoying, for those of you pastors, you get those clips that they put on the back of your shirt. Make sure your mic doesn't get pulled off. And every time I put my head up, it like sticks me in the back of my head. I told Edwin in the back, stick it under my collar, because when I look up, it, it gets my back of my head. He said, well, why are you looking up? I said, brother, you need to look up. We need to look up. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's great advice, isn't it? We need to encourage each other. We need to look up. Not at our newspapers, not at the television, not at the websites. We need to look up because our salvation is near. The time is near. What's an antidote? Biblical eschatology. Can you even imagine a church where the pastor avoids speaking on the hope of the rapture of the church? Because he doesn't want to take a stand, or he doesn't want to be thought divisive by those who don't agree in his church. Paul says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Paul doesn't discourage studying. He doesn't discourage coming to a definite conclusion about eschatology. Actually, in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says that these things not only encourage, 
but they build up the church. The coming of the Lord helps us to endure. It gives us hope. It gives us a sense of urgency. It sends us to our knees in prayer. It reminds us we are in a spiritual war. And we cannot, we must not put down our weapons. Oh, brothers and sisters, how we need the encouragement of biblical eschatology. How our churches need this. May you not be embarrassed or ashamed or afraid to begin teaching it once again. Sixth, the sixth reason. Why do we need to study and teach biblical eschatology? Is because the judgment of God is coming. Go over to first or second Peter, excuse me, second Peter chapter three. I'm going to read this a rather longer section here. Verses 1 through 10. And really the conclusion is verse 10, but I want us to be reminded as I read this, in the evil day that we live in, there is great hope and satisfaction in reminding ourselves that God will judge. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. The word of the Lord says, This is now the second letter that I am writing you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they, notice, deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In Noah's day, Noah was charged as a preacher of righteousness not only to prepare for the coming flood, but also to faithfully declare the need for men to repent from their wickedness. And he was to do this in the face of open mockery and scoffing. Of course, the flood did come, and it wiped away 
everyone except Noah and his family. Right now, we've got reminders of the flood all over the place. And yet they continue to scoff and mock. Today, the scoffers and mockers are still all around. They still laugh at preachers of righteousness. So what are we to do? Just like Noah, we are to continue to declare to this world that the wrath of God is coming. And as we do that, we should expect that not only will there be more mockery, but that there will also accompany with it open hatred and even persecution. When we study and teach biblical eschatology, we help our churches to see the context that we're living in and to keep the big picture in mind. We aren't working towards some fanciful post-millennial kingdom idea. We aren't expecting things to get better and better before Jesus returns. That's not pessimism, friends. It's a biblical reality based upon the inerrant word of God. Total destruction of this world is coming. And we need to warn the lost and remind the church of these truths. And when we begin to feel the intense heat of persecution beginning to increase, biblical eschatology will help us to remember that these trials are only light, momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And when Jesus comes, he will judge righteously. He will put all his enemies under his feet, and they will never more rise again. We need to teach it because Jesus is coming and the wrath of God comes with him. The last reason, number seven, we need to study and teach biblical eschatology because it promotes holiness and godliness in the church. These two verses follow after the ones I just read, verses 11 and 12. The apostle Peter wrote, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? You know, sometimes people will reject teaching prophecy because they say it's just unfruitful discussions about speculation that we can't know anything really about. We can't have any real assurance about what we're teaching. But I want you to notice what Peter is saying here. What we see in these verses and many others is that eschatology is very practical. And therefore, we need to teach it. Since God will dissolve this world, and since the judgment is certainly coming, we also need to work at applying our teaching to the practical outworking of Bible doctrine in terms of teaching the expectation of godliness and holiness. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on this passage, writes, Godly lives are related to and grounded in eschatology. Those who disregard the future cosmos 
will not live well in the present one. That's true. Jesus is coming again. That thought should sober the church. It should sober a church that is given over to flirting with the world. It should cause us to consider what we've been doing for him with the time that we have been given. It should cause us to put aside our sin, to walk in holiness. It should turn our eyes away from this temporal world and remind us to return to the work of Christ. And it should move us from building our own little kingdom and to remind us that all of it will burn with this world. It should refocus us on why we're here and push away the distractions and the cobwebs. And it should move us to deeper prayer, more fervent worship, and passionate evangelism. Is Jesus coming again? Is he coming soon? So the question for us is, what difference does it make in our lives and in our churches? Now, these aren't the only reasons why we need to study and teach biblical eschatology. But these and many others are rooted in the authority of Scripture itself. I am a convinced dispensational premillennialist because I think that is exactly what the Bible clearly teaches. And this is where we've been as a fellowship since the very beginning. This is what the original IFCA doctrinal statement said. It said, the personal, premillennial, and imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this week, we're dedicating much of our time to hoisting high the flag of our doctrine of the end times. And I pray as we do that, that it will motivate you and encourage you and inspire you to go back to your churches and your ministries to declare that Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the great hope that we have. That no matter what it is that we see on the news, or we read, no matter what's going on in our communities, in our country, all over the world, no matter if the mockery and the jeering and the aggression against your church continues and worsens, no matter if bombs begin to fly and if uh, all kinds of disarray happens and war begins in the world, we are firmly grounded and planted in what your word teaches us. We know in whom our hope is derived. We know what the future holds. We know how it all ends. But we know, Lord God, that there are many in our churches that have not been well taught. They have come from other churches, and they are looking for hope. We know there are people that come to Christ. They are in despair. They are looking at the world and what's going on around us, and they're looking for answers. Your word does not disappoint. It gives us what we need. It gives us the hope 
it tells us plainly and clearly and truly what we need to understand regarding these things. So help us, Lord God. Help us to be encouraged by your word as we think about biblical eschatology this week. Refresh us and send us back to our homes, back to our churches and our ministries. Encouraged and strengthened and charged up and ready to do the work that you've called us to do. We know the time is short. We know there isn't much longer. We are waiting with great anticipation for you to come in the clouds and to take your church to be with you forever. But until that happens, Lord, you have given us much work. May we be faithful to continue at that work until the day you call us all home. It is in Christ Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.